I'm uh, George Ogilvy, uh, President and CEO of Arizona Sonora Copper Company. Uh, Arizona Sonora has the old uh, Sackerton mine, which is located in Arizona in the US of A. It's a large former producing uh, copper uh, porphyry system. Uh, our goal over the next uh, five years is to de-risk the mine, take it through the various uh, technical studies, uh, put in place the project financing. And we believe within that time period, we can bring the mine uh, into commercial production, producing somewhere initially between 25 and 40,000 short tons of copper cathode over an 18-year uh, initial mine plan. George, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, really good to meet you. Really good to learn more about uh, Arizona Sonoran. The the theme for this interview is really about contrarian investing. And um in some ways, it's a little bit frustrating because as a mine developer, you've just laid out a five-year mine plan. Um, and yet we do live, um, sorry, a five-year development plan for an 18-year mine plan. Um, and yet we do live in immediate markets. Perhaps I could just start with a question. You know, what do, if I talk to you about contrarian investing, what, what would that mean to you? What, what would be the first few things that kind of spring to mind when I um, mentioned that idea to you? Well, I mean, as you've touched on there, I mean, obviously, um, you know, we're in difficult times. Economies around the world are really struggling. GDP is shrinking. And uh, particularly in the copper space, you know, the copper price is very much affected by the general economy. Um, copper tends to be a bellwether for the economy. So with economies heading into a downturn and likely into a recession, a lot of investors out there might think that this is not the time to actually be investing in, in copper. But in my opinion, you really need to take the blinkers off and think a little bit more medium and longer term as to what is actually going to be the copper demand you know, in the next two to three, five years and, and 10 years out. And when you start to take that uh, wider sort of uh, perspective on the copper market, you quickly realize that in actual fact, now is precisely the time when you have to be investing in copper so that you can be prepared for the next bull market, which is actually coming, in my opinion, uh, in the next two to three years. Well, I, I'm a, I'm an avowed copper bull. You know, you're preaching to the choir in that, in that sense. You know, I'm exploring for copper, and I, I'm a great believer in the fundamentals. But um, the the heritage of the company. I mean, I look at your shareholder structure. You know, you've got 35 percent with Tembo. Um, you've got 27 percent with institutions. That I mean, we're and just talking about kind of a long term thematic. Presumably, this was a Tembo. Uh, well, r rather. Um, Tell me about the origins of the company. You know, did Tembo um, gestate this? Was this a kind of a uh, one of the ideas of Tembo in an even longer term thematic on the copper space, or did you bring them in um, as part of the uh, the listing process? Yeah, so um, it was actually my predecessor, uh, John Antwi, and former chairman Paul Hurt, who's with Corora Resources. Oh yeah, they they had formed the then Elam Mining as a private company. And uh, John and Paul were able to negotiate with the uh, Arizona State Trust that was actually managing the, this asset and the, the remediation of the site. They were able to negotiate with the State Trust to acquire this asset in late 2019, which they subsequently did by paying the state six million uh, US dollars. So we were formed as a private company. We had this asset. And then the company was then looking for private investors. And uh, fortunately, we were able to uh, bring 
uh, Tembo Capital uh, to the table, and uh, they supported the company through its uh, private rounds of funding. And of course, right. we brought the company to the public markets in November of last year when we listed on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. And between then and a private placement that we did in May of uh, this year, Tembo Capital has invested approximately 40 million uh, US dollars, although they've seen some dilution of late. And today, as you rightly pointed out, they're a 35% uh, controlling shareholder uh, within the company. Did they um, increase their, uh, their position in, in, the, in the most recent round, or did they just kind of hold their corner, maintain their interest? They, uh, they put in $6 million uh, in the recent private placement, but it took them from uh, 38% shareholding down to 35% shareholding. And when we IPO'd the company in November of last year at that time, they were uh, approximately a 45% shareholder. I think they put in 10 to $11 million as part of the IPO. But as I said, it then brought them down to about 38%. So we're in a good situation in that uh, Tembo Capital has been extremely supportive of, of the management in the company. They've assisted us and stood the corner with respect to financings. But at the same mm. token, they've actually allowed themselves to be diluted down. Uh, some people may, particularly some institutional uh, buy-side accounts, might actually look at the share capital structure of the company and not be able to invest when there's uh, such a, a large controlling shareholder. So I think over time, as we continue to raise additional monies, Temble will continue to support the company. But ultimately, I think we'll see them eventually diluted down below 20%, which should then help attract additional buy-side institutional accounts and further help with uh, with uh, um, uh, trading uh, liquidity. On the Toronto Stock Exchange, there's that crucial kind of 20% threshold, isn't it, when it yeah. changes from a controlling shareholder to a um, rank-and-file shareholder? E exactly, exactly. So you'd expect kind of long-term target for them is 19.99% and then maintain their interest? Yeah, and they've, they've followed that model with other companies in the past. Um, five years ago, they were heavily in, invested in Aero Copper, which is a, a Brazilian copper play, um, approximately 50,000 short tons of annual uh, copper cathode production. They had gone into a former producing mine in, in, in Brazil and obviously, you know, uh, re-evaluated it and got it up and running. And Several years ago, Temble was a 20 plus percent shareholder there. They supported the management of the company. Over time, they allowed themselves to be diluted down. And ultimately, when the yeah. timing was right for them, they exited the story without uh, an overhang on the share price. And that company's done exceptionally well in the last five years. Yes. I mean, I think if you can get into that, that range of production, you know, that's a, a really solid uh kind of low to mid-tier copper production. It's, it's, yeah, uh, give, yeah, yeah. That's ultimately where I think we'll end up with uh, Park Salier ultimately coming into the equation. When we put out our PEA in August of 2021, which was purely on the Cactus Project, which involves um, the mining of a surface stockpile, a pet layback at Cactus West, and there's an underground component there known as Cactus East, the average annual production was 28,000 uh, short tons of copper cathode production with a yeah. peak around 40,000 short tons. And the mine life was 18 years of production. I think with Park Salier coming into the equation now, 
we're going to try and see if we can get the average annual production up to that 50,000 short tons and maybe even a peak at in and around 60 to 70,000 short tons. And I think we'll see the uh, life of mine now begin to exceed 25 years. So it starts to get up to a size and scale that certainly would be appealing to mid-tier copper producers yeah. and potentially some of the the, the, the larger um, uh, uh, miners that are out there. I, I've seen um, a few gold companies, I, I, different animals I know, mm. but a few, a few gold companies in this market environment uh, yeah. actually putting a hold on the, the bigger project uh, exploration dreams and saying, actually, the, the, we're not being rewarded by adding exploration or adding new ounces. We're not being rewarded by expanding the envelope of mineralization and adding, um, yeah. um, adding resource ounces. But so, in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to go for a smaller, lower capex project, and we're going to push towards production. But what you've just described there is actually almost the opposite. You know, you've, you've talked about adding in parks and salia yeah um is, is it was that a market decision you know was, was that affected by availability yeah, of capital or I the mood so yeah i mean one of the criticisms we've heard of the uh the project you know since we put the pea out was that yes the, the economics look quite attractive and it's in a great jurisdiction and you've got significant permits including the right to take water and there's an abundance of water but the one criticism we've heard is that the production profile is, is relatively small. Mm. So we've tried to address that through park sailor, or we hope to address that through park sailor, as I said, to push that annual production up, uh, hopefully north of uh, 50,000 short tons, which seems to be a bit of a threshold that, you know, if you can get that and have a 15, 20 plus year mine life, you know, suddenly now you'll attract the attention, as I said, of some of the uh, the mid-tiers and maybe even the seniors. The, um, the, the point you you were going to raise on the, or you raised on the gold companies is really interesting as well, because what we're seeing happen now is, you know, gold companies typically used to get a superior multiple. And there was always an argument that a gold company should never divest and, and get involved in some of the base metals and particularly copper. Usually when you find these uh, copper and, and gold sulfide deposits, the two metals actually go hand in hand with one another. But for many years now, the gold companies no longer get that superior multiple. And there's lots of questions being raised about investment in gold companies. Do we need another gold company when we start to consider the uh, greenhouse gas and the ESG uh, angle, uh, you know, with respect to those business models? So we're actually now starting to see a lot more gold companies actually pay attention to the copper space. And of course, recently we had Nico Eagle announce a JV 5050 with tech on the San Nicolas uh, copper project in, in, in Mexico, which is a pure copper play. And we started to see other gold companies, you know, uh, looking at, uh, you know, uh, copper, copper assets. And I, I think that's extremely good news for, you know, the, the group of companies that are explorers or near-term developers, you know, getting close to construction decisions because we're very few and far between there aren't many quality assets, quality projects out there. And if there's going to be increased competition over the next five years or so for those projects, those assets, as we know, 
competition drives prices and a more competitive environment can you know realize itself with uh, exceptional gains for the shareholders of the companies and it's not just that competition for the asset it's it's also the skill set that goes with it because one of the things about a heap bleach gold project or a simple cil gold project is that it's very easy to do the capex is relatively low and the technology is relatively simple the more um successful uh 20 to 50,000 ton per annum copper projects come in, whether it's Heapleach S6CW, well, it probably would be at that scale. Um, the more the technology and the more the skill set builds up around that. And so it's, it becomes, uh, it also becomes easier for the analysts and for the market to understand what the risks are, what the timelines are, what the upside is, mm-hmm. um, and what the, 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 the capital and the, the operating cost expectations are when you've got a healthier population of, of projects in development. Yeah. Goodness, I'm enjoying the conversation too much. I, I, I must think of the next difficult question to ask. <laughs> um, um, when I when I look at their presentation and I see the um, the open pit there, I mean, I can. It, how how is the redevelopment uh, um, relative to the existing infrastructure to the pit? Is it a big pushback? Is it a fresh site? Um, is Parks and Salia? You know, how does that change the the the, the timing of the development? You know, what, yeah. what's the surf? What's the surface? situation like? Right. Well, I mean, the companies did a great job in increasing its land package from 2,100 acres to today 4,800 acres. So we have more than enough land to accommodate all of the leaching pads and all of the waste stockpiles and the ore stockpiles that ultimately will uh, come to surface. So that that's a, that's a good situation to be in. We did see, however, that in the uh, initial draft pre-feasibility study that we've we've been working on lately, we saw that the best margins that we were actually realizing from our our assets was actually uh, Cactus East. And and this was before we were building in uh, Park Salier. Now, Cactus East, just to give you an idea of the size and scale, it's 28 um, million tons at just under 1% copper. And that asset was giving our, our best margins when compared to the surface stockpile and the uh, the Cactus West Pit, which includes a, a large layback. But when we look at Park Salier and we consider just the leachable material there, we're looking at something that's 115 million tonnes at 1.06 total soluble copper in the ground. So from a size and scale perspective, it's almost four times larger than what we see at Cactus East. And obviously, we've got almost a a 10% improvement in in situ grade. So we think ultimately, when we bring Park Salier into the equation, there's every likelihood that that will be our best margin asset. And therefore, when we look at the whole sequencing of the assets and what comes online first, there's every likelihood that Park Salia would be mined first, followed closely by probably Cactus East. And in conjunction with that, we'd probably be mining the surface stockpile, given it's essentially a rehandling exercise and that a lot of the, the costs have already been sunk from the Asarco days into that, uh, that stockpile. And what it, that ultimately then does for us is it really pushes out the open pit to a much later point in time. And there's some added benefits with that plan in that 
With the underground mining coming ahead, obviously it means that we move less waste tons. So therefore we don't have to use the full um, uh, land package that we have. And because the underground ore has a higher sulfide or pyrite content, when it actually goes on to the leaching pads, it self-generates a weak sulfuric acid. And mm. I'm sure all of the listeners are very well aware that in a heat leach operation, one of your largest cost drivers is sulfuric acid. And sulfuric acid is very much linked with um, you know, the oil and gas uh, industry and, of course, We've seen prices, uh, ex, uh, you know, uh, you know, increase there quite substantially in the last 12 months with what's going on around the world. So that's driven up sulfuric acid prices. So a way to improve the model is go after the higher grade sulfide material with better margins and lower some of the operating costs, particularly from sulfuric acid. And, and I suspect ultimately when the PFS gets produced with Park Sailor in there, that's ultimately how it will play out. And Park Sailor is, a, is an underground uh, target. Yeah, it's underground. The top of the mineralization occurs about a thousand feet or 300 meters below surface. <clears throat> and, you know, we've got some intersections which are two to 300 meters in vertical thickness of over 1% copper. So, and it has a lot of uh, continuity uh, and is rather contiguous. So it opens itself up well for some form of bulk mining. And I think initially we'll be looking at one area where there's a sub-level cave. Uh, and while we're opening up the sub-level cave, there'll probably be another area where we're conducting some form of uh, long-hole um, mining. But given those depths, um, uh, it doesn't lend itself to uh, being open petable. It'll be a large uh, underground mine. About tonnage underground. I can see in some of the... Um of your material, you talk about uh, enriched material and oxide material, and the enriched material uh, seems to have a grade around one percent copper, and the, the and the oxide um, 0.7, kind of 0.5 yeah. to 0.7 in that in in that range. But the oxide recovers really nicely, kind of above ninety percent. I think you use ninety three percent in 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 one of your news releases, and um, the enriched material has come down at seventy three percent. Am I right in thinking that all of the kind of the parks, a lot of the what you're talking about from Park Salia is in that enriched um, material? And, and that, that's and it, correct. Ninety uh, percent of the tons at Park Salia, given uh, its depth, is is predominantly enriched material. We don't have a yeah. large <clears throat> we don't have a large oxide cap there. And and the economics more or less work out that the um, you know the higher recoveries from the lower grade kind of more or less equate to the uh, lower recoveries from the higher grade? Do, 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 these kind of, do they more or less kind of match up? Yeah, based on the preliminary work we've did at the moment, yes, they, they, they more or less match up. Higher grades at Park Salia, but likely slightly lower recoveries than what we see at Cactus East, where the, where the grades are a little bit lower. But as you said, we have more oxide material that's given us a, a 90% uh, recovery. And uh, you, you said you had a kind of a draft of the pre-feasibility study. Now, when I when I have done pre-feasibility studies, it's normally associated with uh, trade-off studies, um, looking at uh, right-sizing, scheduling, the, the whole variety of uh, what it might be or what it should be, you know, tr tr trying to find what it should be really in the pre-feasibility study. Yeah. Where are you in that process? And you've talked about possibly delaying the pre-feasibility study where you had planned to produce it early, but now you're looking at producing it at some stage soon. You know, what, what are the critical path items and the thinking yeah. around your pre-feasibility study? Well, the, the draft 
pre-feasibility study that we were preparing up until approximately three months ago was was purely on cactus. Mm. And at that point in time, we were doing um, uh, exploration drilling at Park Salier on 500-foot centres. And uh, when we started to run our own internal resource models on Park Salier, it became very evident that, you know, this, given its size and given the grade, it was going to be actually quite material. And we had a conversation within the company, and obviously we involved the board of directors, and we indicated to them that we have the ability to put out a pre-feasibility study in the next two to three months purely on cactus, but recognize that the market won't give us any value for Park Salia because it's in an inferred resource category. Yep. And as you know, when you move into a pre-feasibility study, only dedicated resources can, can be used so yeah. they can convert over into proven and or probable reserves, which obviously have yeah. you know e- e- economic value. So a decision was made three months ago that we put the draft PFS on hold. Not all of the technical studies had been completed, nor had all of the capital costs been received for some of the fixed equipment and some of the mobile fleet. So we put that on hold and we decided that we would uh, drill Park Salier out into the inferred category and put out a maiden resource estimate on Park Salier, which we did uh, about six weeks ago. And the plan of action now is to take that resource and just integrate it into the original PEA that we put out in August 21, just updating the resource section. No update to the costing, no update to the production profile or the financial and economic uh, uh, models, but purely the resource section. And that should go out to the market in the next week. And while we were are, are doing this, we've now turned the drills to infill drilling to 250 foot centers which will be completed by the end of January next year. By the time we get all the assays back, it will be the second quarter of next year. But at that point in time, internally at least, we will have a updated resource on Park Salier that should then be sitting in the indicated category. And between now and then, we'll be working on other aspects of a rescoped pre-feasibility study, particularly around Park Salier, where in the second half of next year, we can then take that new resource model on Park Salia, plus all the work between now and then that we would have completed, such as metallurgical testing and column tests on Park Salia, geotechnical yeah. work to work out the, uh, the stoke mine design and the, the stoke planning and sequencing, work concerned with hydrology and how we're going to keep the mine uh, dewatered and how much water are we likely to encounter. So that before the end then of calendar 2023, we can come out with this rescope pre-feasibility study that doesn't just include cactus, but also includes park salia that we believe yeah. is going to be material. And as we sort of touched on, um, you know, pre-recording, uh, we think in the next 12 to 18 months, we should have worked ourselves through uh, any economic downturn so that when we come into 2024, we can see an improvement in the general economy. And as we said earlier, you know, copper tends to be a bellwether for the economy. And if that happens, if that timing occurs, 
we could be releasing a pre-feasibility study that looks rather robust as we start to head into what I believe could be the beginnings of a super cycle and commodities that are associated with the green energy sector. I was um, speaking to a, uh, a fund manager a couple of weeks ago, and I said um, I asked him whether he was worried about the China slowdown and the impact on the copper price. And uh, he said, uh, "My goodness, we need it. You know, if you look at the demand profiles and, um, of copper, as you talk about through the the, the, the green, uh, the, the the energy transition and decarbonisation of our of our um, energy system, it just needs the, the the demand profile looks so strong, and the supply side looks so challenged uh, through the lack of development and the falling grades in existing operations and the lack of reinvestment." That he said, my goodness, we need China to slow down. We need the slowdown in order to maintain some degree of long-term stability in the copper price. So um, it's quite an interesting uh, dynamic because it, we see this, we see the softness in the prices. But actually, if you look at the physical and if you look at the stockpiles, yeah, you look at, uh, you know, the wider blows. Yeah, yeah, the wider copper market. Um, it's it's very um, very tight indeed. Um, Talking, moving on to one of your other shareholders, you've got um, Rio Tinto in there at 7%. Yeah. Um, and in the summer, uh, or three or four months ago, you signed this deal with them on, on Newton, this, this new kind of leaching technology. Right. Do you feel that their interest in, in you or in the company goes beyond the using you as a guinea pig for the leaching? Um, um, and have they spoken to you about their minimum economic threshold projects or their minimum economic value projects, kind of their new approach to smaller projects? Yeah, I think at this stage in time, uh, they are genuinely only interested in the company because they want the opportunity to deploy this Newton technology on our primary sulfide, which is uh, charcoal pyrite in this case. Um, and they, they want to take that all the way through to a commercial application so they can show the wider market that there is actually a place for this, this technology. I would say, however, that there, there is a possibility, and this is just myself thinking that if the project gets larger and uh, there are strong economic gains to be had for both parties, I could see a situation where they might want to step uh, above and beyond uh, deploying their, their, their technology. And where I'm sort of going with this as well is immediately south of us, there's actually another company called Ivanhoe Electric, which is uh, Robert Friedland, who I'm sure everybody knows. Their maiden resource that they reported uh, when they IPO'd that company in June of this year is sitting at 10 billion pounds of copper in the ground, of which some of that material is also primary uh, charcoal pyrite. And it's all part of the same copper porphyry system that, that we're mining. So, you know, in my opinion, if you started to look at the two projects from a, a regional perspective, there's every likelihood here that you're going to be looking at something in excess of 20 billion pounds of copper in mm. Arizona on private land with access to water, water permits in hand. And I think that would be extremely attractive to a senior um, uh, mining companies such as a, a, a Rio and a few others like BHP that are actually out there out there today, given the size and the longevity and you know the the location of the projects. Yeah, interesting. The the, the, the bigger companies certainly do like the the, the jurisdiction uh, security. Uh, yeah, it, their, yeah, their threshold investment is much smaller in a safer jurisdiction than it is when you're 
talking about kind of real frontier stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and look, I mean, the number one and number two copper producers in the world are are, are Chile and Peru. They tend to produce more concentrates, which ultimately goes off to uh, to China for processing through smelting and 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 refining and. You know, as we touched on earlier, you know, China is a big player in, in the copper world and typically takes about 50% of the world's uh, copper demand. But I, I ultimately think that, that those dynamics are going to change. The energy crisis in, in, in Europe is going to drive the European Union to accelerate decarbonisation and move to green energy. And there's going to be more significant demand for copper and other commodities associated with green energy in Europe, and, and they're going to have to secure those critical supplies. And I think following that as well, North America, particularly in the US, will be playing catch up. But, you know, the Americans are paying five, six, seven dollars a gallon of fuel at the pumps. They've never seen those costs before. And subsequently, we're seeing an increase for electrical vehicles in the United States. But it, it's not just the fact that uh, an electrical vehicle car has two to three times more copper in it than your standard combustion engine. Think about all the charging stations that ultimately will have to go in. And, you know, in the United States, a lot of the, the states themselves um, are, are responsible for their own uh, uh, electricity grid. It's not something that's regulated or managed federally. And a lot of the states have underinvested or haven't invested enough in their, uh, their hydro system and, and the transmission, the main transmission lines. So, you know, it's one thing getting cars, but as, as the uptick in, in electrical vehicles continues, eventually it's going to feed itself into upgrading the, the national grid or the state grid to accommodate that additional demand for power. Yeah, well, heaven help us if we require a lot more copper. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think China's influence on in the copper space in particular is going to diminish as the rest of the world, and including Europe and North America, take up that that further demand. And you know, as well, like we see a lot more social unrest, let's say, in countries like Chile and Peru, and um, you know that puts in doubt investment in those countries and you know future supplies of of these critical uh, elements particularly copper i could i could sit and talk a long time with you about uh, the, my views on <laughs> on renewable <laughs> on renewable energy and green energy but um i'm certainly with you on the um on the demand for copper in electrification and um i i you know when i study the, the global fuel market and the energy market um I, I I see it as being very hard to decarbonize in the short term, um, but that doesn't mean that, that, that there's not embedded governmental-led uh, demand drivers. And uh, absolutely, the, the the outlook for copper, I'm totally with you, is is very very strong indeed. Thank you. We've uh, it's been a it's been a fascinating conversation. I've managed to steer away from talking too much geology, uh, which is a first for me. Um, but could you just just kind of get getting back on theme? Let's let's talk about the the cycle where you see your development phase, um, why shareholders or investors should be looking to invest into uh, Arizona Sonoran now, um, as opposed to, you know, you've got you've got a Lassonde curve that you're fighting. You know, um, everybody's yeah. got, you know, it's it's a well-known phenomenon that this that the next year or two are boring but important. Um, yeah. 
if you could just kind of reiterate your in your kind of philosophy why why it's worth it now rather than waiting um, five years until you're ready to start digging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the company has already substantially de-risked the project. It's not your uh, typical greenfield uh, copper project. This is a brownfield site. It's a former producing mine. It was in production for 10 years. Therefore, the metallurgy, the processing, the recoveries of this system and deposit are very well known. <clears throat> we have water permits for the next 50 years, which are valid until 2070. Um, we have a, an abundance of water actually in the ground right on our, uh, our private property. And uh, because it's uh, private land, there are no uh, federal regulators involved, only local, state and municipal authorities and any permits that we've applied for over the last two and a half years, and there have been quite a few, from the date of the application being administratively accepted until the permit is received, has, uh, has always been under um, six months. So that's extremely quick when you compare that to, uh, to other projects out there. Uh, and as we said, we have a PEA out. Uh, we are in a bit of a quiet period, as you rightly pointed out, based on the Lausanne curve. The fact that we're in the PFS and then we'll go into the bankable feasibility study. But to try and keep a little bit of uh, excitement there on the story, um, we also have other expiration targets right on the site. And uh, when we acquired this property in late 2019, the initial resource only on the surface stockpile was around £225 million of copper uh, in the ground. And over the last two and a half years, the company has invested 40 million US dollars in the drill bit with expiration expenses. And we've increased that resource from 225 million pounds initially to 3.5 billion pounds in the PEA. And then recently now with Park Salier coming in, we now have 6.5 billion pounds of copper in the ground. So at $40 million investment, that is under one cent a pound of copper as the discovery cost for the contained metal that we have in the ground here. And we think we need to continue exploring. And even in these tough markets, we do believe that for exploration teams that can continue to have success, the market is rewarding them. And where we have the biggest opportunity is between Park Salier and the Cactus West Pit, there's one kilometer of open strike length there. A Sarko did drill there, but the holes were only 300 foot in depth because essentially they were only condemnation holes. And we know the top of the mineralization at Park Salier occurs about a thousand feet below surface. So in these big copper porphyry system, you get these horse blocks, these uh, thrust faults that can throw the mineralization up or down. And there is the possibility that between Park Salia back to the Cactus West Pit at depth, there could be the same copper porphyry system existing there that's never been explored. Also on the northeast extension, a Sarko did drill there. This is immediately northeast of the Cactus East underground mine. A Sarko drilled there. They did hit the copper porphyry system. The best hole they had was about 47 feet of 3% copper. 
And uh, we intend to follow up on that in 2023 with an exploration campaign. And then it's, it's great, isn't it? It's great it, when you get those exactly. historic things. Exactly. Sorry. And, and Asarco walked away from, from that because when they hit the mineralization at that time, they were looking for something that was near surface. It was open pitable. They weren't interested in, in pursuing an, an underground mine at the Northeast extension. So they walked away and, and they did exactly the same thing at Park Salia. And then until recently, before Rio came to the company with the Newton technology to try and leach the primary sulfide chalcopyrite, anytime we have drilled below the pit and we've gone through the oxide and the transitionary material, which is a covalite and chalcocyte, and the drill bit has moved then into the primary sulfide, we've always shut the drill bit down. So why drill the primary sulfide if it wasn't part of our business model uh, to, the, to the full extent of the basement fault? But if the Newton technology shows signs of success in the first half of next year through the initial results of the column test, there's a possibility then to drill the primary sulfide out below the pit all the way to the basement fault. And that could potentially add hundreds of millions, if not an, an additional billion plus pounds of copper in the ground in primary sulfide. So we think if we were successful in all three of those areas, there's a potential here to add another two to three billion pounds of copper, contained copper in the ground over and above the six and a half billion pounds we have at the moment. And I, th Good. I think another reason why investors should certainly look at this company is that in US dollar terms, we have a market cap today of 100 million US dollars, no debt, 25 million Canadian uh, US dollars cash sitting in the bank. Ivanhoe Electric, which is immediately south of us, they have 10 billion pounds in the ground. They have a market cap today of 900 million US dollars, of which about 60%, 70% of that valuation is ascribed to Santa Cruz, which therefore is about 550, 600 million US dollars of their market cap is the deposit immediately south of us, which is a greenfield site. It's not a former producer. It's on private land. They haven't secured water rights just yet. They haven't produced any preliminary economic assessment or PFS. And, and it's easily 10 to 15 years away from first production. Yet here we are immediately north and our market cap is, is one fifth of, of that company. So there's a large valuation gap. And I think as we continue to market the company and deliver on our own goals and objectives, I believe that valuation gap is gonna narrow with our, our values coming up. George, what a, what a great conclusion. Um, that, yeah, you, you, should, you should be in a position where you can market this company. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, that's no, part, that's, of my, part of my job, Merlin. <laughs> it's, it is part of your job. No, um, uh, the, these compar these comparisons are very useful. Um, the value creation through the drill drill bit is is really important. In in certain environments, you know, you, it can be a boring time in the Lassonde curve, um, where it doesn't seem to uh, accrue value as you de-risk your main project, but. What you can't predict is when that value does get, get ascribed to the project. You just have to go through that work 
And as you de-risk it, you you de-risk the investment case of the company. And as long as you maintain the capital structure and good order and of, of the company. And so timing is uncertain, but value is being accrued. Yes, absolutely. Um, good. Well, we better leave it there. Um, but thank you very much. And um, let's, uh, we, it'd probably be good to reconvene uh, after the, you know, Q2 or something, once you've got some more test work coming through, some more drill results. Um, and definitely when the pre-feasibility comes out at the end of next year. Yeah, absolutely. That that was my thinking. Uh, we, we we should see the first results coming out from the Newton testing, the column test, probably towards the end of the first quarter of next year. So it might, might be a good time to talk about that and also what our plans are, given the budgets will be approved in, in late December, January for 2023, and maybe what we're doing on from an expiration front at that point in time. I'm sure the the viewers would like to see that very much. Good. Excellent.